Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your affectionate host, Robert J. Marks. You know, I recently vetoed a family member's suggestion that we put a lock on our home that could be opened using a cell phone app. I didn't want it. Why? There was just too much that could go wrong. An old-fashioned key lock is simple and reliable. I was unsure about cell phone apps and haven't had the best of luck with some of them. This is a problem with complex systems. The more complex the system, the more it can go wrong. Artificial general intelligence, or AGI, will be complex. For all the stuff it's expected to do, it has to be complex. And as complexity increases linearly, the way things that can go wrong increases exponentially. This is especially concerning when human life is involved. We talked about this last podcast with Uber killing a pedestrian and also the Soviet OCO saying that the United States was attacking the Soviet Union with thermonuclear missiles. To talk with us today about this topic is PhD student Sam Haug and freshly minted PhD Dr. Justin Bowie. Both are members of my research group and are really, really smart. Sam, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, You too, Justin. Thanks for having us, Bob. Sam, you were the first author on a peer-reviewed paper that showed the reasoning behind this exponential explosion of, uh, of, of contingencies. Can you explain in as simple a way as possible why contingencies increase exponentially as the complexity of a system increases linearly? This, this explanation is probably best illustrated by example. So uh, here, let's consider a washing machine. And we're going to have a very simple washing machine. All it does is it has two settings. It either washes the clothes for a long time or it washes the clothes for a short time. In addition to those two settings, it only has one singular sensor uh, to figure out uh, how long it should wash the clothes. Uh, and this sensor is going to measure how heavy the load is. Um, And so in this very simple example, there is only one sensor involved that is keeping track of one variable in our design project. And it yields two possible outcomes, either washing for a not long time or washing for a long time. Uh, So if this washing machine is to be correctly designed uh, to handle these loads well, all that needs to happen is... Uh, that the the washing machine needs to be tested uh, for a heavy load and a light load. And if it handles both of those scenarios correctly, then you have designed the perfect washer uh, for the design project you have. And in this particular instance, in the design process, uh, the assumption is that you'll begin with a prototype, you will test that prototype to see how well it handles the uh, contingencies that you're expecting, Uh, And if it handles those contingencies well, you're done with your design process. Uh, If it does not, then you'll need to make some tweaks to make sure that it does. Um, And so this is going to be kind of the framework uh, that we we use in the paper uh, to discuss complexity of design. And now let's talk about just a a slightly more complex example. So we still have this same washer. It is still only able to discern a few uh, variables using its sensor And now we're going to add one additional sensor, uh, which is how dirty the load is, which is um, the commonly referred to measure is turbidity. Um, So if it is a very turbid load, uh, it's very dirty. And so you'd need to wash it also for a long time. Uh, And if it is not turbid, if it's very clear water, 
uh, in the washing machine, then you don't need to wash it for as long. And you can do this by simply putting a something like an LED light and seeing how much attenuation there is from the light to the sensor. And the more turbid the water, the more attenuation is going to be given, right? Yes. So you've, you've added a sensor. Okay, go ahead. Yes. So here, uh, our design is getting, is getting a little bit more complex. Now we have, instead of two possible input loads, we have four possible input loads. We could have a light clear load. We could have a light turbid load, a heavy clear load, heavy turbid load. Um, and so now we have increased, we have doubled the number of possible input loads uh, that we can put into our washer. Uh, and we'll begin to refer to these possible inputs as contingencies because uh, that is what they end up being uh, in, in the design process. So in order to now design the perfect washer for this, uh, this washer that now has two sensors, you need to test four possible loads. And if this washer correctly handles all four of those loads, then you've, you've finished your job. You have designed uh, the perfect washer for this example. And we, we begin to see here, as we add variables, each time we add a variable, uh, and in this case, uh, each of the sensors only has an on or an off reading, uh, so there's no um, scale or range of values. Uh, but So in this case, every variable you add doubles the number of contingencies uh, that your washer will need to account for. Um, and to give you a little bit of a numerical estimate of, of what this does, if we increase the number of sensors on this washing machine to 20 sensors, so it, it keeps track of 20 different variables, so heaviness would be one, turbidity would be one, it could go through any number of other possible examples. With a still very simple system with only 20 sensors, each one can only be on or off. There's no range of inputs for these sensors. There are already over a million uh, contingencies that you would need to design your washer for. Wow. Uh, which which is just incredible. Looking at a, a little bit more complex system of uh, an image recognition software, um, for example, those one of them would be the uh, the wolf and dog classification that we talked about last time, where you feed a neural network a uh, picture of either a dog or a wolf, and it tells you uh, which it is. If you wanted to fully characterize uh, the performance of this system, you would have to test every single combination of pixels uh, in the image size that it's going to be fed. So for a, a small 100 by 100 pixel image, uh, that's 10,000 pixels that you need to test. And each of those pixels has 256 gray levels and three color choices, uh, which is the, the RGB, which is red, green, and blue values for each pixel. And in this still relatively small design example, uh, if you wanted to fully test the, the performance of any um, image classification software you're designing, you would have to test it 10 to the 29,000 times, um, which that number is, is so large, it's difficult to imagine. So as a, a bit of a, a ballpark estimate here, um, the number of atoms in the known universe is estimated to be around 10 to the 80th which is an incredibly large number, but the number of contingencies with this small 100 by 100 image is just unfathomably larger than that, 10 to the 29,000th power, um, which is just bigger than anything we could probably imagine. 
as, as we say in Texas, is bigger than Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, it's just it's just an enormous, enormous number. Now, of course, I think that testing all possible images, um, you know, would probably not be wise. And we're going to get we're going to talk later about how you reduce these number of contingencies in order by reducing the problem a little bit. So that that was an excellent example. Thank you, thank you, Sam. You know, software engineers want to design systems like AI to avoid the problems of the contingency explosion that you just talked about. For example, the image. We wouldn't want to do all of the 10 to the big, big number um, tests. So what are some ways to avoid unintended contingencies? That's a good question. Um, So one of the primary ways that we can uh, mitigate these effects of uh, the exploding contingencies is with uh, what we call domain expertise, um, which is a designer's very intimate knowledge with uh, the design that he's creating. So for example, in the area area of uh, self-driving cars, which are extremely complex, um, some domain expertise there might be familiarity with traffic laws, familiarity with the physics of acceleration and braking and turning and such. So domain expertise is just just ground level knowledge of uh, the environments that you're going to be placing your design in. Uh, And in the example of the image uh, recognition uh, design, some domain expertise there might be in recognizing that your image process or your image recognition software will not be exposed to random static noise, for example. Um, And so it may not be as important for you to test all of the possible combinations of static noise uh, for your image, but to focus on the images that will probably be presented to your, uh, to your design, such as, you know, pictures of wolves and pictures of dogs, and to make sure that those are classified correctly. That's, uh, that's, so that's domain expertise. Okay. You know, I, I use this example a lot. I used it in a podcast with um, Ola Hersher and Daniel Diaz, but one of the great illustrations of the need for domain expertise is Formula 409. Uh, Have either of you heard of Formula 409? The cleaning solution? The cleaning solution. Okay. You know, I I asked Daniel, who is from Colombia, and I asked Ola, who is from Sweden, if they had ever heard of it. And they said, no, no, no. They must use something different. Well, the reason the Formula 409 is labeled Formula 409 is it took 409 experiments in order to design that final result. And that required domain expertise. I'm sure it was done by chemists. I'm sure it wasn't done by junior high students, for example. And in fact, it was done by a total novice, it would be called Formula 2,642,000 or something like that. And so, yeah, domain expertise really can be used as a technique to reduce the unintended contingencies. And um, that's that's what they did. In fact, this is very interesting. We, we, we know about Edison testing thousands of different filaments when he generated the, the light bulb. And Tesla, who was kind of a nemesis of Edison, came along and he dissed Edison. He said, you, would, you don't need to test all these 10,000 different combinations of, of filaments. If you just had a little bit of book learning, you could get this down to, you know, 100 or 200. Because some of the things that Edison was testing, Tesla considered kind of stupid. So that's another example of the need of domain expertise. Another one is WD-40 that I like to use, which is water displacement system mastered at the 40th try. 
And this was done by an industrial chemist. I think his name was Larson. And if he had not had domain expertise, we would be using WD, you know, 5 million or something like that. So in order to test these contingencies, in order to do good design, if you will, we need this, um, this expertise. And that's something which is really, really important. Justin, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, kind of, kind of like we said, you know, the the addition of of subject matter expertise really, really does reduce reduce the complexity of things. You know, I think a lot to my research tied a lot with with image recognition and classification, and um, you know, some of the some of the techniques that are implemented in a lot of the larger scale systems deal a lot more with traditional computer vision techniques. You know, histogram correction, color matching, and correction image resizing and stuff like that, it, it uh, kind of, the more you can do on the front end in the pre-processing uh, side of things, the much more simple your your AI system can be. Uh, and it aligns quite well with, with some of the increasing complexities that you all have documented in your paper. Yeah. Um, okay. Fascinating stuff. I think from, I've learned from you, Justin, that there's a lot of standardization of the AI. In other words, there's a a sort of conformity that is used in order to sculpt the input to deep learning. So you don't have to consider so much. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, I, my, my intuition and my gut feel says that that's where a lot of the, the subject matter expertise is actually best used, right? If, if you can get, uh, let's say, let's keep running with the, the example of, of an image classifier. Uh, if you can get the best possible, most standard looking data, Right, the most clean, most precise data. Uh, the development of your, of your AI system will be that much more simple. Right, you can you can reduce impacts of you know noise or color mismatch, lighting variations, um, all quote unquote in the input pipeline, meaning that you can you can minimize and optimize uh, the implementation of of your AI system. Yes, you know, so standardization. I guess I look at it as a, it, it reduces the contingencies by decreasing the complexity of the problem that you're trying to achieve. You, you've standardized everything, if you will. You know, um, Sam, there, there are some other obstacles facing uh, development of complex AI. We talked about, for example, in Jeopardy of Watson repeating an incorrect answer. And those are covered very interestingly by a quote, I think, made popular by Donald Rumsfeld. I'd like you to talk about that for a second. Of course. This quote uh, is given by um, former State Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Rumsfeld. And the quote here is, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. You know, the funny part about that quote is it sounds like double talk if you read it real quickly. But but if you sit down and examine it, it's really meaningful and applicable to the sort of thing that we're considering. Yes. Uh, so uh, we've we've taken kind of a, a very esoteric look at breaking down these uh, these known knowns and unknown knowns and, and et cetera, uh, and we've kind of defined lumped them into four categories. One of them is the known knowns. Uh, these are the tests that we have conducted on our design, and we have evaluated the result of them. And so these we're, we're very sure that these are correct knowns because we, we've actually done the testing. We've seen how it performs uh, and there's not much more to know about these particular uh, performances. Uh, the next would be the known unknowns. 
these are the tests that we have not conducted. And we know that we have not conducted these tests because we, we haven't tested it. And so we, we are aware of our lack of knowledge uh, in these particular uh, environments and these particular circumstances. Uh, another type of these unknowns is the unknown knowns. That sounds like an oxymoron, but it, it, it isn't, <laughs> right? The, un, right? The unknown knowns. Okay, go ahead. Very correct. Yes. So uh, these unknown knowns are things that should be obvious, but have been overlooked uh, by the designer. And so going back to some of our examples that we mentioned in the previous podcast, uh, the example of IBM Watson repeating an incorrect answer that was given by another human contestant, this would be one of those unknown knowns where the designer uh, who, is, who is watching the, the contest would you know, give themselves a facepalm because they know that they should have foreseen this particular contingency, uh, but they haven't. Um, and so these are contingencies that are obvious, but just have, have not been included. The final classification of the knowns and unknowns are the unknown unknowns. And these are, are the most troubling uh, situations and circumstances uh, because even a designer with uh, expertise in the domain, uh, they did not foresee uh, the possible outcome of this particular circumstance. And so these would be, for example, self-driving cars attempting to classify plastic bags uh, when they're moving and not moving. The uh, the designers probably would not facepalm uh, if they uh, if their car encounters a flying plastic bag that it is uh, unable to classify correctly because they they didn't foresee that and uh, uh, and it's not something that they should have foreseen that was extremely obvious. It was something that uh, just couldn't have been foreseen by a, by a designer with domain expertise. Fascinating. I guess the unknown unknowns is really what is a big problem. Right. So I think in the, the, the Oku example where incoming missiles were interpreted from the sun reflecting off of clouds, that was probably an unknown unknown that wasn't even considered in the design of Oku, which is unfortunate. Here's a counter argument. You know, we see highly complex systems that operate reliably. An example of that is you and me, we're human beings. We are put together. We are very complex, but we still seem to work well. Why? What is going on here? And how is that consistent with the theory that we've just laid out? Yes. So uh, I definitely agree that human beings are extremely complex uh, and extremely well well made. Um, and uh, I personally believe that this is because humans were created by a uh, creator with an extremely large depth of domain expertise who was able to <laughs> that 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 is a great phrase sam i appreciate right. our, our creator has a deep uh how did you put it a, a deep uh, knowledge deep of domain of expertise yes. that's great that's yes. funny so okay. our designer he he doesn't just have expertise of the domain he created the domain and that just has an infinite depth of foresight and predictiveness where he is able to design these incredibly complex systems and foresee all possible events that they will ever encounter uh, in, in history or in the future um, and design a human being who is able to overcome and uh, adapt to a lot of these circumstances. You know, even so, I'm thinking of the design of human beings. We're still not perfect. There are some in our design. I don't know if they're unintended contingencies or not, but 
things like COVID, for example, uh, you have an adverse effect to that. We weren't designed to handle COVID, especially old people like me, or even something similar like uh, eating hemlock the way that um, Socrates was killed. Um, We also see defects like in birth defects, uh, diseases such as cancer and things of that sort. Isn't this an example of contingencies which we would prefer not to see in the design of humans? Yes, So uh, the way I like to think about uh, how human beings fail in certain circumstances uh, falls into two categories. The first category is uh, that our creator intentionally did not design us to withstand this particular contingency. Uh, And this can come from a couple of reasons. One is when designing uh, a human being or any incredibly complex system, there are some uh, design trade-offs that exist where you can design a human being to be able to uh, resist the effects of eating hemlock, for example. Um, But the cost for doing that may be large. For example, you would need to include an entirely new metabolic pathway to uh, account for that particular uh, poison. And doing that for any number of poisons may just not be feasible in the size of a human body. And I, I don't claim to know about all the design uh, implications of making a human being, but I'm sure that there was some level of uh, intentionally not designing a human being to withstand some things uh, for, uh, for trade-off reasons. And then the other category of things that humans fail or the human design does not withstand uh, would be due to the fall. And you know, I believe in, you know, the God of the Bible who designed us perfectly and we sinned and, and fell. And as a result of that fall, the perfect design that God has made was corrupted. And all of the contingencies that he has foreseen, some of the um, mitigating factors to avoid or overcome those contingencies may have been affected by uh, the corruption of the fall. And so that is where I think diseases and uh, stuff of that nature comes from, because uh, I don't I don't believe that those were intended pre-fall uh, for disease and death of that sort. Well, you know, what, what, whatever the cause, we do have something in design. Engineers know this called a Pareto trade-off. This is this is a trade-off between optimal performances. I worked my way through my master's degree as a disc jockey, and one of the things we used to do is we used to cut commercials. And sometimes the copy for the commercials came from the people that were sponsoring the commercials. And we had one, and I remember it because it's so hilarious. It was a place called Charlie's Fish Market. And at the time, there was an explosion in price of meat, you know, like like pork and beef. And anyway, here was the copy. The copy was, good meat ain't cheap, and cheap meat ain't good, so eat fish. (laughs) That was was the ad for Charlie's Fish Market. Now, that explains a Pareto trade-off. Now, what what do we mean by that? There is, is, in our world now, there's a trade-off in performance. And I'll give you an example with cars. Safe cars aren't cheap, and cheap cars aren't safe. That's just like Charlie's Fish Market ad, right? So what you have to do is you have to do a Pareto trade-off, a a trade-off between being a cheap car 
and a safe car. If you want a safe car, drive around in a Humvee that has extra armor plating on it. And if you want to go down cheap, you know, get a little scooter and don't wear a helmet or something. But you, you have this entire gambit. And it turns out that Pareto trade-off says that for a certain price, there's the best safety that you can get in a car. And I think if the only criteria for buying a car was the safety and the price, that if you're like me, you would set the price and then see the the maximal safety that you can get. And so this is this is inherent in in design, at least that we experience today. I, I, I agree with you, Sam. I don't think it was applicable before the fall, but certainly uh, today it is. So this is this is something that we are certainly stuck with. Okay. Any final thoughts? Um, I have a, a just a little bit more on how domain expertise can help in the design process. Okay. Um, so I did mention that domain expertise can be used to kind of reduce the number of tests that you need to perform on your design. Uh, Cause there are some circumstances that you don't really care how your design performs because you don't expect it to be put in that circumstance. But another way that domain expertise uh, can help in the design process is by forecasting what the result of a test would probably be. Um, and so this saves a lot of time in doing the actual physical testing because uh, the designer is able to very quickly look at an environment and say, well, I know that it'll perform well there, or I know that this particular aspect of the environment will cause it to perform poorly. And so that can reduce the number of tests that have to be physically performed because the the uh, designer has enough domain expertise to know how it would perform. Yeah. The whole design thing is a big iteration, isn't it? Yes. You, you design, you test, and then you redesign. And that's the reason we talk about WD-40 and Formula 409. It was an iterative loop. And so not only does the design have to be well, that, for example, for AGI, the software engineer has to know what they're doing, but there is intelligent testing where you go out and you need to test the AGI and then do variations in order to improve the AGI uh, as you find out different places that it works. To build on that too, right? Testing and verification is its own area of subject matter expertise. I think one that's, that's often overlooked, you know, it's, it's funny, uh, you know, to give everybody an example uh, of subject matter expertise. Uh, so I ordered a new Bronco last year. <laughs> the car, not the horse. Correct. Yeah. Okay. The horse probably would have shown up by now. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's very interesting because if, you, if you've followed along with the release of that vehicle, they had a, a roof issue for all of the hard tops. Uh, and it turns out that they decided to replace all of the hard tops that were built or previously issued up to, I believe it was August. And when you uh, observe uh, kind of what happened and how it got to that scenario, it turns out that they had some type of QC that permitted faulty hardware to get into the loop. QC. Quality control. Quality control, okay. And uh, you think about that, you're like, well, from a testing perspective or a verification perspective, that's something that should have been caught, but maybe they just didn't know what to look for. You know, it, it ties very well into, you know, the testing expertise for an AGI system, right? You know, we talk about the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns being, you know, kind of, you know, major hurdles, right? And the unknown unknowns are the most dangerous kind because we, we don't know that we don't know them. Um, and it's one of those things that, uh, you know, when you start looking at verifying a system, you know, 
you could almost argue that requires more expertise than developing it in some cases. Ah. And so I think I think that's going to be a topic that you see more and more of uh, as we continue to dive into these areas. And you continue to see more and more AI systems deployed in the real world, right? You you get these scenarios like Uber where you where you strike and kill a pedestrian and, and you know, pretty much every engineer is probably sitting there saying, Well, okay, what are the what are the circumstances that could have led to this, right? You know, it's such a complex system, you know, with, with so many different subject uh, expertise requirements that um, it, it quite, when you when you look at it in an unbiased light, it's it's quite a bit to overcome. And so I think Kind of to, to tie things together, you know, AGI is is becoming less uh, general and more specific, you know, and I think that's that's kind of where we'll see a lot of the direction head in the foreseeable future is is a lot more specificity, kind of a step away from from the, the general application. That seems to be where it's going. You know, even if we could overcome the exploding contingency problem. There are other obstacles that cast doubt on successful development of AGI, and I have to keep pounding this this home because this is one of the major uh, stances of the Bradley Center. In terms of duplicating humans, AI will never be creative, never understand, and will never be sentient. And we cover these topics on Mind Matters News, and this is a th- these are additional obstacles which I believe are not overcomable. Is that a word? Overcomable? I think it is. <laughs> Insurmountable. Insurmountable. That's that's a better word. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so the obstacles of designing complex AI can possibly overcome, but it will require a lot of expert engineering. Thank you, Sam and Justin. Uh, our guests today are PhD students Samuel Haug and Dr. Justin Bowie about obstacles of designing AGI. And so till next time on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.